Your Bibles open up to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue through our study. This morning we're going to be reading through, looking at, and by God's help, understanding Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'll start reading in verse 1. This is one of the more well-known passages in Ecclesiastes. And as I read it, try not to hum along with the birds. Classic song, turn, turn, turn. Ecclesiastes 3.1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, a time that you have ordained for us to now, in this moment, to sit and to hear. 
And Lord, we pray that as we do so, this would be a time where our hearts are convicted of sin, yes. But Lord, also that you would, by your grace and the power of your spirit, help us to rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins that we have in Christ. Lead us now and guide us with wisdom that we might make sense of this passage, Lord, and apply it rightly to our lives so that we would live wisely in life under the sun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My parents met uh, in Afghanistan in the early 70s, and uh, not shortly after that were married, but while they spent their time in Afghanistan, you can't help in Afghanistan to start loving rugs. They're everywhere, and uh, they're not too expensive, and so they really got into buying nice Afghan rugs. And what you come to find out with a rug is that the quality of a rug is not seen on the upper part, which you see and walk on. Now, if you ever see my parents and they're checking out a rug, they go and they lift it up and they look underneath the rug. They want to see how it's knit together and and put together. That's where the quality of a rug is seen. And you see that when you watch somebody make a rug, the loom that weaves it together, they're not looking at the beautiful side, the finished product. Now, the, the maker and the crafter of a good rug, he's giving all of his attention and his focus to the underside, the, the knitted part. And it's only there that he can see what's going on, and, and, and he has a design in mind that will make sense when it's done that we'll all see on the finished side. And I think there's something to that in how we live life now under the sun. There's something to seeing only the knotted and knit together weaving of under a rug that doesn't quite make sense, though after the product is finished and you lay it down and then you look at it, you see it's absolute beauty. Life under the sun, life in this world, life east of Eden in a fallen world is much like looking under the rug. You don't quite see the beauty, but you know something's happening. You know that there's a weaving and a design taking place that at the end will produce something beautiful. And I think Solomon is getting at that here in Ecclesiastes 3. In chapter 1, we saw that the reality of death makes all of our repetitive quests for greatness, all of our grasps for meaning and purpose, actually quite meaningless. And then, just to drive the point home a little bit further, in chapter 2, Solomon reminds us that all of our pursuits for pleasure and all of our pursuits for purpose here in this world, all of our pursuits actually slip through our fingers without ever gaining real satisfaction. He reminds us over and over again, all is vanity, vanity. Just a chasing after the wind, trying to herd cats. It's not going to happen. And now Solomon wants to bring together, I think, the big picture. The whole rug, if you will. The whole of life and then the little weaved together seasons of life. And he begins to unpack why we lack any control over it all in this reality here. Why there is no meaning and control over all the seasons of life that roll over us under the sun. The big theme, obviously, as we read through it, is the, is the theme of time. It's repeated throughout the entire passage. And Solomon wants to show us how all people 
are trapped within the bounds of time and are subject to its ever-shifting seasons and patterns. Time, according to Solomon, rules over us. But he also wants to show us how God rules over time. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. You see what he says there? Whatever God does endures forever. Time does not bind God, nor the things that God does. God is not bound by time. And so once we get that, Solomon will help us to see that truth is a very freeing truth in this bounded time we live in. The first thing that he wants to show us is in the poem that he lays out in verses 1 through 8, and I'm including verse 9 there. And there in verses 1 through time, I think we see the rhythms of time which rule over us. Just as the created world has its, its seasons and its patterns of regularity, there's winter and then there's spring, summer and then fall, and the same seasons and patterns reverse and, and, and repeat as they go through. Well, so too do our lives experience their own rhythms and their own cadences, seasons of life which ebb and flow for us all. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a time to keep silence. There's a time to speak. There's a time to love. Then there's also a time to hate. And he ends by saying that there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. This poem is a very interesting poem. It's made up of two couplets of seven. 14 different times of a, of a time that is good and it's seeming opposite. And it, it seems to be that, that Solomon is laying out here the perfection of God's time uh, and that some times are good and we enjoy those good times, but then within life under the sun there are also other times which are just, well, just not so good. Time for mourning. A time to refrain from embracing a time to cast away, a time to die, a time for war. It's an interesting way in which he structured this. We're supposed to read through it and, and almost in its poetic nature flow back and forth in its rhythm, the way it rhymes within the Hebrew. And we're supposed to get caught up in the, in the beautiful flow of its patterns. But there's also something I think quite interesting about this, this poem there really is no structure to how it goes. Uh, one line doesn't really make sense after the next line. Yes, it makes sense as to why he begins with a time to be born and a time to die that kind of encapsulates it all. But, but why he jumps from one thing to another, why he jumps from weeping to laughing, then to mourning and dancing, then to casting stones and to gathering stones, then from embracing to refraining from embracing... There's no real rhyme or reason to that. I think what Solomon's doing there is that he's showing us that within the rhythms and the patterns of seasons of time within our life, a lot of it just doesn't make sense to us this side of the loom, this side of heaven. There is a, a rhythm and a pattern that we're caught up in, and we have no control over it. It's outside of our, 
of our grasping. It's outside of our entire control. The, the structure of the poem, I think, forms the meaning of its content. Life is complex. It's full of good and it's full of bad. There are hard times and there are easy times. And there's lots of in-between times. And we're all just kind of caught up in it. These seasons act upon us. And we tumble along like stones at the bottom of a riverbed. We dance at a wedding with the woman or the, the, the man that we love. And we've committed ourselves to loving for the rest of our life. But we don't think in the midst of that dance that there's going to come a time when we're going to mourn their loss. We weren't in control of when we fell in love. And neither will we be in control of the times when our loved ones die and pass away. These seasons and these patterns act upon us. We can't go into our Google calendar and say, you know what, tomorrow I am committing three hours of happiness. And I think the next day after that, only 20 minutes or so of of sorrow... And I'm definitely going to plan next year, 2019, to kind of be a a capstone in my life where I reach that next goal and, and life really starts getting good. That's just not how the seasons of life work. There are seasons, and many of them are profoundly relational that we have no control over. To the mothers in here, happy Mother's Day. But for how many of us did that just kind of catch us by surprise? Uh, For one moment, we are living life without children, and it it seems we've got all the time in the world, and then sleep vanishes, and the child is waking up every night, and you love it, and you're going after it, and you had no control over it, and the children grow up, they do things, and they fall in love, and you had no control over that. They go off to school, or they go off to work. And these patterns and these seasons, they they just roll right over us and we're we're just kind of taken along for the ride. There's a time for everything. And the point is that we cannot plan for them. Verse 9 asks at the end of this poem, the same question that Solomon has been asking throughout Ecclesiastes. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 3. We saw it again in chapter 2, verse 22. And the question is this, what's the point? What gain has the worker from all of this toil? I get up, I go to sleep. I get up again and I get in my car. And I go to work and I drive the same route on 495. And I get to work and I do the same thing and I I clock out, and I get home, and, and I eat the same meal, and there's a repetitive, and, the, and the, the, there's a pattern to it, and, and sometimes the seasons shift a little bit, but at the end of it all, I didn't drive that. What's the point? Life is a rhythmic, lyrical arrangement of good and bad, relational complexity, nuanced subtleties, and at the end of it all, we go into a box and the cold, hard ground of death's unending darkness. I think that's the point of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It's fascinating that this is a passage that's often read at funerals. And uh, it's not unfamiliar to those funerals where Christ is never mentioned either. Uh, This is not, I think, actually the most encouraging thing to read at funerals. Appropriate, yes. But certainly not encouraging. 
The point of the passage is that what do we have to gain from all this? We die and the patterns are done. And yet, the painful poetry of verses 1 through 9 is not all there is to this chapter. I think Solomon wants us to to make sense of this painful poetry in verses 1 through 9 by seeing the, the explanation of the prose in verses 10 through 22. The poem is not all there is. And so we move on into the next section, and we see, I think, in the rest of the passage, now the sovereignty of God, which rules over time. If the poem is reminding us of the rhythms of time which rule over us, now Solomon wants to introduce to us the truth, the sovereignty of God, which rules over time. The rhythms of time and and each appointed season controls the patterns of our life. Yes, that's true. But God does not exist within time. Look there at verse 14. Again, whatever God does, Solomon tells us it endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Look there at verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. There is a purpose. And he makes it beautiful when it's time to be beautiful. We find beauty, and I caught myself uh, just this last week looking outside at our backyard garden. It was planted by the owners before us, so I can't take credit for it. But the flowers that bloomed are beautiful, and they're just this vibrant purple that you can't help but stare in and say, Wow, that, that is so beautiful. And I had nothing to do with it. It was completely the seasons of life that brought that about. But God... With everything that's beautiful, he has made it beautiful. He's entirely in control. Look there at verse 10. These seasons are seasons God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has established all of these seasons, all of these patterns, all of this time just for mankind to be busy with. Not something that he toils with, but something that he is in control of that he gives us to toil with. I'm reminded of Psalm 90, where in verse 1, the psalmist tells us that God is from everlasting to everlasting, eternal and unchanging. And then the psalmist says this, a thousand years are only as but a day in his sight. Time to God is nothing but his created clay to have fun with. There was a time when there was no time, and guess who was there? the eternal, unchanging perfection of God. And at one moment in God's wise plan, he said, let there be time and place. Now just think about that. Let that lead you into worship, into the ineffable, wonderful glory of an unimaginable God who is outside of time. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Part of the struggle, though, Part of the conflict, I think, that Solomon is bringing out in this text, and you can see it there uh, there in verse 11, is that we have, I think, this innate sense of this truth about who God is. And we have it innately in us because every one of us has been made, created in the image of God. We are, as image bearers, bearing the image 
of an eternal, timeless God. We have, as verse 11 reminds us, eternity placed within our hearts. And the prison of the patterns of time, all of which end in death, that's not natural to who we are as God's image bearers. The struggle is seen there in verse 11 where Solomon is reminding us that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We know that there's something outside of time. And yet from our perspective, underneath the tapestry of the loom, we can't make any sense of it. We have this yearning and this desire as image bearers to to be with him over there, over the sun. But here we are, under the sun. And he's given us time and these patterns of time within the fall. And it's a struggle. It's a conflict within our very own souls. I think this is life for us under the sun, east of Eden. Here we are unable to understand the big picture, that God is working out all things for his glory. Uh, We are reminded of that in Romans 8, that there is not one thing outside of God's control. And in every instance and in every moment, God is doing something to bring about a picture that will reflect his beautiful glory. And yet the struggle is we don't see that. We can't make sense of it all. There are seasons of life that we get caught up in that seem absolutely tough, unbearable at times. There are seasons, aren't there, where in the quiet of our own home, in the privacy of our closet, we're crying out to God in confusion. God, what is going on? Why have you allowed this sickness? Why have you allowed my wife to go through this? Why is my son not getting this? Why is my son not obedient? Why is my children not doing the right things? Why is society unfairly bearing down upon me? There are so many things that happen within life and and you can't help but cry out. And oftentimes, more often than not, the answer is, nothing. There's silence. And there's a darkness and there's a confusion to the seasons of life. Verse 16 reminds us even more grimly that there's injustice in the place of righteousness. And in the place where there's supposed to be justice, wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. Solomon, along with all of us, have to cry out, why? What is behind this? You think of abortion? The least helpless? uh, The most helpless and the, the least likely to be able to protect themselves? Society should stand up and say, this is a life that we will protect. And yet throughout society... Every day, every minute, every every day, thousands and thousands of helpless boys and girls are slaughtered. This is wickedness in the place of righteousness. Have you heard of the name Damon Grimes? Who earlier this week was riding his uh, moped in his neighborhood. And... uh, not doing anything wrong except having fun. He's written it many of times. I think the only thing wrong was that he was not wearing a helmet. 
And a police officer came and tasered him in the face while riding it. And he crashed and fell and broke his skull and died. This is a place where the righteousness should have protected this young man. Perhaps called him to pull over, but certainly not taser him while riding on his bike. Now that's wickedness in the place of righteousness. And this marks every second of every day throughout time under the sun. This is living east of Eden, friends, under the sun of vanity. And I think we read this, I think we, we hear this, and we get to a place we feel it, I hope, where we cry out that this is not how the world was meant to be. Uh, we, we, we cry out and say, well, will there never be a time where justice will finally reign? Will not all things be made right? Will not the helpless be protected? And will not those who did not do anything wrong not be persecuted? I think Solomon answers us and he says, yes, absolutely there will be. Look there in verse 17. Solomon reminds us that there is a time, he says in my heart, where God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. The third point that we want to see here is the reality that God will bring all time to an end. Yes, time rules over us now. And yes, God rules over time. And here's the greatest truth. God will bring it all to completion. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. The end of the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us, the very last line, the the summation of it all, his final argument, he says that there is a time where God will judge every secret deed of all mankind. Every unfair connection made in the dark corners of society, every unfair agreement, every wicked plan carried out, God will bring that to judgment. All good deeds, God will bring out and judge. Perhaps you're here this morning as someone who is serving without the spotlight on you. Perhaps you come here on Saturday mornings and you clean the church Saturday after Saturday and no one knows about it. God will bring that to light. Perhaps you're serving at home within a marriage that is awfully unfair and yet you love and you love and you love God will bring that to light. Every deed will be judged. This is what he means, I think, in verse 15, when he says God will seek what has been driven away. Within this society, within this this place under the sun where where righteousness is driven away, uh, where the good and the beautiful are, are, are dashed away by the darkness, God himself will pursue that. And I think there will become a time, there will come a day, that last day, will all will be brought to light. Friends, that's good news. God will seek what's been driven away. Knowing that God is outside of time and he sees it all, that he's in sovereign control of it all and will in the end bring judgment to everything done here under the sun. Friends, this stops us, I think, from needing to be in control of everything that happens to me. I can live within the rhythms of a good good season, balanced by a bad season, I can live within the patterns of of hard times and easy times, life and death, and yet not need to have all the answers right now. Why? 
Because we know everything and every time will have its day in court. Have you ever gone to a movie? This is not me. This is my mom. Um, And you've seen the movie and she hasn't. She's constantly whispering, how's it end? How's it going to end? And you know the movie that if you give the answer now, it's going to ruin how everything's uh, woven together. Uh, There's something beautiful about a good ending to a good movie that has that plot twist. Might I posit to us that the author of all history, his story, is weaving together such a perfect story in his divine providence that at the end we will get there and when we see it over the sun in light of his glory, every one of us will say, oh, of course. And in that day, in light of that moment, every time of struggling that we've had here, every night where our pillow was filled up with tears because we just didn't get it, we'll look back and we'll say, of course. Perhaps we'll say, Father, forgive me for doubting you in that moment. And I think Solomon now is getting us to realize life sucks now, and you're not going to get it. But God does, and he's weaving a perfect story. Wait, it's worth it. So while I wait... How should we then live? While we wait, how should we then live? I have three things here as we come to an end. The first one that Solomon has already reminded us of, and he shows us again there in verses 12 through 13, enjoy life. In light of this truth, enjoy the good gifts that God has given us in those times of rejoicing. There is nothing better than to be joyful and to do good and to eat and to drink and enjoy the toil of your work. These things are given by God to be pursued and enjoyed in and of themselves. We don't have to squeeze out of them meaning that will give us life uh, more than we can handle. Just enjoy it for what it is. He repeats the same thing in verse 22. There's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. And again, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. There are often times in my life where I'm going through good seasons and, and I, I can't help but think, Lord, when's that all going to crumble? And uh, there's, you know, there's something to that. We know that the good seasons cannot last forever. I think that's wisdom in light of what we've read. And yet what Solomon wants us to do, what Jesus reminds us to do, is to not worry about tomorrow. Well, let tomorrow worry about itself. Enjoy the blessings that God has given now. Friends, are you living in a good season right now? Then rejoice and thank God. Are you living in a season that's tough right now? Friends, rejoice and wait on God. I think that's the second point he wants us to see. That a godly life, a good life, a worthy, wise life is a life lived in dependence upon God. Living in this world is learning, I think, how to grow small. Living in this world is is learning how to not be God yourself. Look there at verses 18 through 21. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see themselves. They are but beasts. 
But what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. I think the point that Solomon is making here is simply this, that we are all finite creatures, therefore we're not infinite. And we're tempted to think often that we are, aren't we? We're creatures and not the creator. We're dependent, made to be dependent, and not independent. That was the sin of Adam and Eve, was it not? To have the independent ability to be able to say what was good and evil, rather than dependently resting and relying upon the creator and infinite goodness of God and what he said was good and evil. And ever since they took that power to themselves, vanity has existed throughout life under the sun. Verse 14 reminds us that God has done this so that all people fear before him. We're dependent, finite creatures. And we're meant, in light of this truth, to live in awe of God. Or Solomon says, to fear God. We must rely upon what he has said and rely upon his good providence and not in our own selfish, self-exalted wisdom think that we can get control of it all. Again, in those tough seasons of life, are we crying out independence? Or are we shaking our fist and saying, God, that's not the way I would have done it? Are we crying out and asking God, sustain me, Lord. Help me. I cannot do this by myself. Or are we saying, Lord, I've got it from here. No more church, no more Bible. I'm going to take life by the horns and do what I've got to do. When you get in a car accident, John Piper's favorite analogy, when you get in a car accident and your little girl goes flying through the window, and lies dead in the street before you. Will you cry out in that moment, God, you are enough. Though my life and my treasures and my family waste away, Psalm 73, God, you are enough. Where can I go? I think dependence upon God shows us that true satisfaction in the life now comes when we love and live in humble dependence upon God we can find a right satisfaction when we live in satisfaction of who God is and how he's working life out. Finally, I think he wants to show us that we need to live life in light of the end. Live life in light of the end. What difference will it make in your life now when you start living proactively and, and, and with an awareness in light of the last day? What difference will it make to your life now when you live in light of the last day? There's a time for every matter under heaven. We don't know the overall pattern. God is weaving in the tapestry and the, and the beautiful rug of time now. But we do know that at the end, he will paint a picture that makes perfect sense. And it will be more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Living with that in mind, I think that will help us persevere now. I think that will help us to get through with an obedient heart now. I think that will help us to rely more in prayer upon God now. Live in light of the end. And oh, may the truth of that glorious day reverberate back. In 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter asks, I think, a, 
a profound and probing question. He says, why is God's justice delayed? Why in light of the vanity and the wickedness that pervades life now and the seasons of time where there should be peace and there's unfair war, where there should be rejoicing, but there's unfair persecution? Why in light of that is God's justice delayed? Why hasn't, Peter wants to know, why hasn't God righted all the wrongs or brought all evil to judgment? Do you know how he answers this? He says, if God were to judge everyone now, which one of us would be able to stand? The answer is no one. Peter says God is graciously giving time now for all sinners to repent. He's patiently waiting so that when that last thread of this grand tapestry of history comes to an end, And he brings all evil and all wickedness to judgment. And that last day, every deed is brought out into the open. And every thought and every action and every word we've spoken is now cast before him, the all-holy God. When that happens, there is no more chances. But because I love you, and because I'm waiting patiently for you to repent, I am slowly weaving this picture. Solomon is reminding us here, again in verse 20, that we all die because we've all sinned. See there in verse 20? All are from dust, and to the dust all return. Solomon is echoing the curse of Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve sinned, and he pronounces the curse and says, From dust you came, and now to dust you shall return. Death has marked all mankind under the sun. This life is punctuated by the constant exclamation point that every one of us will die, which presupposes that every one of us deserves death because of our sin. And yet the good news, implicit here in Ecclesiastes, but profoundly explicit now in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he still live. The timeless one entered into time, entered into the death of time, and then exploded into life to never die again. Friends, the good news is that if we trust in Christ and follow after him, rejoice and find our satisfaction in him, life will not rule over us, death will not rule over us, but Christ will. And in him, we will enjoy him forever in the timeless eternity of glory. Friends, let's rejoice and look forward to that day. Let's pray.